This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Naomi Smith. This week, the Russia report is finally out, revealing that ministers did not see or seek evidence of successful interference in our elections. The continuity leave campaign claims they're exonerated, but is it any wonder that you don't find evidence if you don't even look for it? These kids need to watch a bit more CSI. Plus, COVID killed the radio star and the newspaper too. What do job cuts at The Guardian and the BBC mean for the future of British media? And how on earth did Bill Gates become the voodoo doll of COVID conspiracy theories? Can't a guy just be a munificent billionaire philanthropist without being blamed for everything? All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Um, Before we get into the Russia report, please top up your hourly vodka shots and find your 10-foot pole as we meet today's panel. Making his return from self-imposed furlough to The Bunker, it's editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, mate. Not bad, not bad. Thank you very much. So news emerged on Saturday that uh, Brexit-supporting figures like Ian Botham and Gisela Stewart are set to get peerages. um, And as a reward for their, quote, Brexit loyalty, uh, and yet still nothing for John Burko. Are they just trying to, you know, rub our faces (laughs) in it now? I don't know about that, but I mean, it's definitely, you know, the, the anti-elite stuff has now pretty well sort of faded away. And in fact, the, the new elitism is basically packing the lords with your chosen people, which in this case is these guys. I just, I mean, as you said that, I've just realized for the first time that is it, so it's not, I think I always said, did I say Gisela? Gisela? How did you say it? I said Gisela. Gisela. Right. I probably, I have been. Is it? Right, okay, so I've only been getting that wrong for about five or six years now, so that's good, that's I mean, I feel like pronounced. I learned something. Well, look, it's better than Dorian saying Gislaine <laughs> rather than Gilaine <laughs> on Romaniacs That's last true, week. that's true, it's superior to that, yeah. Um, uh, you and I had a sort of, uh, I would say, a sort of minor disagreement <laughs> about uh, the monarchy on Romaniacs last week. Um, it, with all these stuffings of peers into the Lords, how long before the peerage system would get, you know, fatally compromised, do you think? Or is it is it as much of a British institution as afternoon tea? <laughs> no, I mean, look, it's it's been compromised for like, you know, over 100 years. Like, you know, everyone, I mean, the majority of sort of political people you speak to, and I, I haven't seen the polling, but I, I would have thought there'd be quite a lot of support for this in the country. I could be wrong. Would say, you know, that that thing is just, you know, obviously has major, major problems. But you get the same sort of issue that you get with electoral reform, right? Which is that by the time that someone is in a position to do something about it, they no longer wish to because it has suddenly become useful to them. In this case, by just packing it full of your guys. So we constantly get in this problem where we can't really figure out what to do with it, which is a shame because, you know, like so like when we were discussing the monarchy, right? Like, you know, as you said, like the, one of the 
things that often gets raised against Republicans is always this thing of, well, what would you replace it with? Which is a difficult question for reformers. In the House of Lords' case, it's actually like kind of an amazing, really satisfying question because when people are saying, what else could we do with that thing? There's lots of very, very interesting ideas. The best of which, weirdly enough, was I think probably put forward by Jack Straw's white paper at the height of New Labour, which was really sensible about thinking, can we get people with experience and authority in various fields, but also complement that with, you know, more democratic sort of, you know, legitimacy. There's some really good ideas around there, but just no one ever wants to do it. It's never in their interest. Also joining us is Alex Andrew. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hello. I'm all right. Um, The other story uh, over the weekend, of course, was the rising tension between London and Beijing, uh, with a particularly punchy interview occurring between Andrew Ma and the Chinese ambassador, Liu Xiaoming. Um, Can we afford to take a stance um, against authoritarianism China at the same time as, you know, hurting our economy and cutting ties with allies due to Brexit? Um, Of course we can. Look, I I think... (laughs) Um, diplomacy is a little bit like parenting, you know, it, it requires clear boundaries. It needs a sort of loving firmness. Uh, and, and the issue here is not the UK's current position, some of which is right, some of which is not. It's not the previous position, some of which was right, some of which was not. The, the problem is the gulf between them. So if you spend five years being best buddies with someone and raises no, raising no issues on Hong Kong, on human rights, etc. And suddenly you shift that position radically, a partner will look at your motives for, the, for that sudden change. And if they are suspect, this is key. If China believes the UK is adopting this position at the USA's behest, they will never see the criticism as con- constructive. There are countries like Germany who regularly take a firm line on human rights abuses and all of that side of things, but have a healthy business relationship. I think the key is clarity and consistency, and that's what's lacking in the UK's position. Yeah, the Germans don't mix business and pleasure. (laughs) Completing today's panel, it's author of Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights and staff writer at The Atlantic, Helen Lewis. Hi, Helen, how are you doing? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. Um, did you enjoy uh, the, the kind of remarkable interview between Donald Trump and Fox News host Chris Wallace, uh, where the president got pretty angry about being fact-checked on Biden's policy on the police and said he aced an intelligence test because he could identify an elephant? <laughs> I thought it was a, a great interview. And actually, I think it's one to to watch right up there with Emily Maitlis's interview with Prince Andrew in terms of how you actually give people enough rope you know, there are interviewers who specul- specialise in the kind of the gotcha or, you know, sort of self-aggrandising stuff. But he just very patiently kept going, well, that's not true, is it? I mean, that's not true. I mean, I've got the facts here. That's, I mean, that's not true, is it? Um, you know, so, they, they, he, so Donald Trump at one point tried to claim that, you know, testing, a, a coronavirus diagnosis had gone up because testing had gone up. And he went, well, you know, testing's gone up 43% and diagnosis had gone up 193%. And this, you could see this sort of sending off tiny little short circuits in Donald Trump's <laughs> brain. But yeah, the same thing with, the, you know, the fact that he had gone and done the cognition test beforehand himself was just a really smart piece of prep that actually I think mm. a lot of people wouldn't have thought to do. So he was able to go, well, you know, I did the cognition test. And as you say, it's basically like, can you remember, you know, these words, banana, rose, you know, nuclear war, <laughs> Chinese <laughs> virus. And then like someone asks you to recall them five minutes later. You know, it's 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 a bit like the Glasgow Coma Scale. Like some of it is designed really to just test whether or not you're fundamentally kind of conscious 
Um, but I, <laughs> I mean, but, but to be fair, the elephant is literally the logo of his party, so it may be one of those words. I mean, do you think that he knows that? I mean, he's be- he's not really a Republican, is he? He kind of accomplished a hostile takeover. I doubt he could give you a long disquisition on the history of the Republican Party, <laughs> or like if you said, "And what's the Democrat?" Like, I, I doubt that he would know that was a donkey. Like, I just don't. I mean, you know what I mean? I just think there's lots of stuff yeah. he doesn't he doesn't know that you sort of expect any president <laughs> would know. Um, but, which I mean, is, you know, you do want to kind of... I mean, there must be a huge temptation in any interview with Donald Trump to do a sort of pub quiz round at the end and just, like, find out. <laughs> like, name, name any planet. Go what on, any mean? planet. <laughs> um, on a slightly more serious note, though, is it... Was this a one-off or are we sort of seeing a significant shifting at Fox and that they may have turned on Trump or should we not read too much into it at this stage? It's always hard to um, to work out because even in a, an organisation as sort of ideologically committed as Fox, there are very different shades within it, right? So different people's shows have different agendas, different levels of access. You know, they, they went through a phase of kind of putting token liberals on the panel for a while. But what the thing that it made me think of was that um, I don't know that Donald Trump really knows that Fox News don't love him. They love that he's president. <laughs> and yeah. if he loses in November, I think he might be sort of slightly sad that no one's like they're not going to be returning his calls. Um, and that gave me a moment of, of, of momentary pleasure. The Intelligence and Security Committee's report into Russian interference in the election and the Brexit and Scottish referendums has been released after sitting in an intray somewhere in Westminster for 10 months. Why or why would that be? It revealed that Britain is playing catch-up when it comes to Russian interference and that the government actively avoided looking for interference during the EU referendum. Large chunks of the report have been reformatted rather than redacted. It's full of asterisks that indicate the removal of any amount of text rather than us getting some clues as to how much is missing with redaction overprint. This is, of course, for fear that Russia might use the information to threaten the UK. Whatever the report's findings, the elections it talks about have all been and gone. And unlike the USA, whose own elections were also compromised by Russian interference, we are still four years away from a meaningful vote on pretty much anything. So have the government succeeded in holding back the report until it no longer matters? Helen, were you surprised by the contents of the report? I mean, we we had sort of been softened up a bit uh, to expect a damp squib. Yeah, I don't think it was a damp squib exactly. I think it was quite a a helpful report. And I think the most interesting thing is the fact that it put down what we don't know. So it put down the fact that, you know, MI5 and intelligence agencies hadn't really looked into the possibility of Russian interference in the um, EU referendum. And, and, And actually, no one wants to take ownership going forward of electoral integrity in the UK. And that is really quite significant. The happiest thing that I think that came out of it was the fact that because we all vote in like church halls and primary schools on with pencils on weird sized sheets of paper, it's actually very hard <laughs> to hack a UK election. And I thought that really, you know, when you get, I, I don't remember, mm. maybe it was the last election or the one before, like I just remember unfolding this freakishly large ballot paper that was like 90 feet long. <laughs> and, and I thought, yeah, no, actually, sorry, Vladimir Putin, you can't, you, you haven't got a printer with paper this size. You're simply unable to hack our elections. Um, so and, that, and, and, and people were saying, oh, pencil, pencil, you can't use pencil. Actually, turns out it's the safest bloody thing we could be using. I mean, it really genuinely is. I would not, um, you know, USA has moved very heavily to voting machines. And I seem to remember there was a hacker convention a couple of years ago. Where they got a nine-year-old girl on stage to hack one just to demonstrate quite how easy it was. Um, I mean, not that I think that necessarily matters as much as Donald Trump claiming that mail-in ballots this time have been um, have been tampered with. That seems to be his like preparatory excuse for why he thinks he might be about to lose. But yeah, I, th- I thought it was it was 
really useful to have a lots of stuff on on record for the you know in in such an official mm. format. So the fact that Russia today doesn't seem to really have particularly many viewers, but instead exists to sort of divert money to its guests, is really interesting. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. and very telling. And also the, the the sheer, I think the thing that's probably the biggest thing to take away from the non electoral stuff is the sheer amount of Russian money sloshing around, particularly London, um, yeah, and actually Oli- whether Oligarch or not central. Right, we will ever kind of purely get to grips with that and I Dominic Raab you know as not a person who gets praised a lot on this podcast has actually seemed to have taken that quite seriously with some of the Magnitsky sanctions um so that is a promising area of future lawmaking I think yeah and also if you could get the name of that nine-year-old girl uh we might you know she could be very useful in the future if we need her to maybe do a proper bit of investigation for us because uh, it seemed like this maybe didn't go quite far enough however it's gone far enough for leave campaigners of course to seize on it as you know total exoneration fair and square we we won it are they right to be doing that well I don't think it, it, it makes the case either way I mean it's certainly not a sort of smoking gun in terms of the argument that the Russians stole Brexit, it's also not a definitive clearance of that that policy either. It's just simply not within the scope of what it seems to have um, have covered. So I think that argument will rage forever. And I also think it's wrong for that argument to rage forever because it's, it's fighting the last war. You know, if you're yeah. really concerned about the influence of Russia, and I think you should be really concerned about the influence of Russia's propaganda efforts on the internet and on social media networks, you know, that's that's gone, that's done. It's, it's very useful to know about it and know what happened. But the, the main use of that now is to make sure that it can't ever happen again, or that the techniques that, you know, that Russia wants to use, you know, we know about them and we're anticipating them in future elections. Um, you sort of bigged up Dominic Rob just now. Um, <laughs> over the weekend, uh, there was an attempt, of course, to spike the report. Uh, it seemed with with Rob saying that hackers, uh, Moscow hackers, had tried to meddle in the election by leaking details of you know confidential trade talks uh, to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, has he succeeded in taking the edge off the Russia report, or was that a sort of a bit of a dead cat that, that didn't go anywhere? It was. A, it was a dead cat that people didn't go. Wow, that's a dead cat. They went. Oh, look at that cat it doesn't seem to be moving very much does it oh, I hope it's all right um I think there were two things I mean I have personally I had flashbacks to the fact that I was on politics live on the BBC when Barry Gardner turned up with that leaked report brandishing it and probably got <laughs> absolutely taken apart by Malcolm Gladwell who was weirdly on the panel at the same time who turns out to have spent several years as a pharmaceutical reporter and then I started asking Barry Gardner a series of really intense questions about drug pricing <laughs> which obviously Barry Gardner in no way prepared for. He was just basically wanted to come on and wave this thick document. Um, so that there was, a, there was a kind of aspect of kind of high camp to that, which I enjoyed. But my favourite thing about it is, and this is consistently, the Tories did this during the Jeremy Corbyn era of Labour, they would attack Tony Blair era policies, like having a mm. go at Tony Blair was going to upset Jeremy Corbyn. And you think, I think if anyone hates Tony Blair, you know, it's it's him, right? He, he He's more upset yeah. about Tony Blair than you actually are. And the same thing here is that, again, the Tories are fighting the last war. Trying to link Jeremy Corbyn to being too soft on Russia was undoubtedly something that was would have been very effective and was very effective in the 2019 general election campaign, right? His response to Salisbury and the Scripple poisonings was seen by voters, we have evidence from focus groups, as being, you know, not standing up for Britain's interests, being too soft on Britain's enemies. The same thing is simply not going to wash with Keir Starmer, who has, you know, already in his first 100 days KO'd the biggest Corbynite in the cabinet for a you know a, a small but telling infraction over anti-semitism so it was quite adorable really that they were like yeah that Jeremy Corbyn guy yeah he's too much in the pay of Russia and you're like but also now a <laughs> Labour backbencher indeed Alex what's your take does it in the words of uh, Luke Harding 
confirm what everybody already knew? Um, No, I think it goes slightly further than that, actually. I I found it quite inclusive. I found it covered a lot of areas that I didn't know it would cover. Um, I think that the stuff it has to say about the general penetration of uh, uh, Russian sort of agents in the general sense, not in the sense of spies, but agents of Russia in UK civic society, I thought was very interesting. I thought they were really sharp on the use of uh, bots and trolls to sort of astroturf and drive wedge issues and uh, make politicians believe that certain opinions are more popular than they actually are. All of that stuff I thought was very useful. Uh, Dominic Raab almost immediately said that there wouldn't be a public inquiry because, uh, quote, government has seen no evidence. Uh, Does this, so I see no ships approach wash? Well, I mean, when the central charge of the report is that they refuse to look for evidence, I think saying saying we've seen no evidence is quite self-defeating. But we come back to this thing that they have a large majority in Parliament. So tomorrow they'll come out and say we consider the matter closed. And unfortunately, other than external pressures, there's very little anyone can do. Um, And what do you make of uh, strenuous Brexiter efforts to claim the report is a plot to discredit Brexit. Andrew Bridgen was leading on it. The Express ran a big headline, don't try to smear Brexit. But surely they can't argue with the findings that that are now out. That, you know, there is, there there obviously was some kind of interference, even if there wasn't huge evidence of specifics. Well, I think, I, I think what Helen was saying about fighting last year's battles or four years ago's battles. Um, I think that's partly true, but I think it's also true to say that the past forms a a continuum with the present and the future when it comes to the democratic process. So in a democracy, it's, it's not just enough to be a fair process. It has to be seen as a fair process. And I think that's where the problem is, because even though you can't quantify the effect anything any of that might have had on the EU referendum vote, for instance. When you're talking about a narrow vote like that, if you stack Russian interference together with rule-breaking, together with funding infractions, together with advertising breaches, um, what, what it forms is a picture of a tainted process. So the people who don't like the result will rightly see the result of a tainted process as a tainted result. And and I think focusing going forward, um, that's not something we can allow to stand. That mm. We can't have another election with half the people in the country believing that it doesn't matter because it's going to be cheated anyway. Well, well, on that, you know, and to to do what you've just said, we shouldn't, and and to take you back a bit, this report obviously has been lying around for the best part of a year. If it hadn't, if it had been released before the general election or at some point during uh, the last parliament where where the Conservatives didn't have an 80-seat majority, would it have affected how people uh, voted in the general election or, or, you know, could it have affected how parliament acted um, ahead of the end of, of 2019? I think it may have affected how Parliament acted. Um, again, that sense that the, the process was tainted. I don't think it would have significantly affected the general election result. 
because um, there, there were so many other issues um, in play when it came to that. So, but I mean, it's all a little bit, how long is a piece of string? Who's to know? Um, what I'm interested in is this notion that uh, Russian influence has, has become so embedded, so systemic in the UK that the intelligence community basically just shrugs and goes, ah, we can't untangle it. Ian, um, obviously, uh, Alex and, and Helen have both talked about how uh, the report shows the government and intelligence agencies more or less turned a blind eye. Uh, and the report described interference as a hot potato because there doesn't seem to be any one organisation taking a lead on it. Might that at least have consequences? Could we could we maybe see MI5 you know, saying that, that, yes, this is firmly within our remit and, and we will now pursue this and and the recommendations in the report yeah i mean so look the report the report's argument is basically look mi5 seems squeamish about getting involved in this stuff because it looks like security services getting involved in a democratic process and the the committee sort of says look don't think that's a sensible approach for you to take that's not what you're being asked to do what you're being asked to do is to defend the democratic process which is a completely different proposition but i don't think anything's going to fucking change because ultimately it comes down to the government to do it when you look, I mean, the rep- I thought the report was one of the most damn, I thought it was much more damning to me than what I expected. Because what I expected was for it to come up with some kind of assessment of the degree of Russian interference in the Brexit process. But actually, it was much worse than that. What it said was, we tried, they could provide us with nothing because they weren't paying any attention, despite the fact that they had evidence that two years earlier, during the Scottish independence referendum, there had been interference then. And we're unable to come up with anything since the referendum, because the government has, well, essentially, I mean, in the press conference around the release of the report, they went further than in the text, where they sort of said, because they consciously made sure they wanted to know nothing about Russian interference. Mm. Now, on the basis mm. of that record, you just think, well, there's no fucking way these guys are going to start paying more attention. Then you start paying attention to what is it the government has done since that report was written? I mean, the report was written a year and a half ago. It should have come out months ago. Instead, they tried to kill it. Why did they try to kill it? Now, we thought for a while it was going to be because it had information about Tory, uh, about Russian donations to the Tory party. In fact, there's almost nothing in there about that and certainly no specific mention of the Tory party. In really why it happened was because Dominic Cummings decided that it would allow a stage for Dominic Grieve, who was then the chair of the committee, to do something. So in other words, it fell into the Brexit dogfight. After that, you then get Dominic, well, apparently all the Dominics have to be involved in this one, coming out and saying, well, we're, no, we're going to start talking to you finally. Pretty much the first time the government's come out and started talking about uh, Russian interference in a British democratic process. And talk about the 2019 election insofar as it pertains to what Jeremy Corbyn did. Then last night, we get briefings to friendly papers like The Telegraph. The Telegraph's fucking front page story today bears zero resemblance to the actual truth, saying, well, it's got, it showed that there was no interference on Brexit and it was all about the Scottish um, independence referendum. When in fact, what it said was, we can't come to any conclusion on this because no work has been done to discover what would have taken place. So what you see there is a government that is essentially trying to do the exact tribalism that Russia is trying to exacerbate within the country. That's one of the three aims that Russia is said to have when it engages in disinformation, as cited in the report, is to try and encourage wedge issues, cultural, social, political division. We have a vote leave government in this country, and it shouldn't be remotely fucking surprising that they have acted 
in all things and in this one in order to exacerbate those exact same cultural, social, and political divisions. And that's what they've done here. And for that reason, you can't have any confidence whatsoever that they will address this problem. No, and uh, as well as those uh, who were purged last year from the Tory party, many that weren't do consider themselves fierce patriots. But but what you're saying is that, well, you know, they, they can't because they're effectively behaving in such a way that it, it gives Russia exactly what it wants. Um, was What was behind the mini rebellion that put Julian Lewis in charge of the Intelligence and Security Committee? Was it being driven from a position of patriotism or or simply we just can't have failing grailing at the helm? No, I mean, that was him just taking an opportunity that he saw in order to, you know, make sure that he got a better outcome, both for himself and I would also say constitutionally. Um, the, the patriotism issue is really fucking pronounced, right? Because we're not really talking about the result. Like, I mean, you know, for us to get into the game of, you know, would would it have been a Remain win if it wasn't for Russia? I mean, that's just, you, we have been denied any kind of information to come to conclusions about that. So it goes way beyond fucking Brexit. It's not really to do with that at all. It's to do with the fact that you have a government that defends your democratic process in your country against the hostile interference of a foreign state. Like what more fucking elementary patriotic duty does a government actually have than that one? It has utterly failed in it. And so now there is a situation which, in another world, where I thought that people might actually appraise this stuff in a way that wasn't tribal, you would have MPs say, this is on a basic patriotic level, on a level of defending this country. This is an utterly intolerable state of affairs for us to have found ourselves in. But as much as we're seeing a bit more sort of robustness from Tory, Tory MPs, I beg your pardon, over China, I don't think that we're going to see it in this area because most of them are absolutely sucked into that Brexit debate where on this matter at least, it is it is completely wrapped into those dynamics. And that doesn't bode well for where there's going to be any kind of corrective influence for what happens in four years' time. But that's a bizarre that's a bizarre fracture, don't you find, that it's exactly the same sort of group of backbenchers that are losing their shit about using a Chinese wire in some mast, um, but mm. are apparently completely relaxed about Russia actually running interference in our elections. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's because, do you remember, like, during the Brexit debate, Naomi, you would always say this, of like, you know, you can't, it, it, when we're, you know, we're, when we spent, you know, four years of our life t- talking about how can you convince a Leave voter to take a different position? You know, one of the things uh, was always said was, look, if you, if you just do it on debates that have, we've already had for a year, you'll get nowhere because everyone just slots into their pre-existing position. But if you do it on some new area, then you're more likely to get people to think in a different way. And I think that's what happens here is it's not really about intellectual or moral consistency. The China thing doesn't slot into our pre-existing culture war debate at home. Mm, mm. So it, it's, it's got this completely new very where it's basically you go back to your original position of right. It's, you know, good, good old England, making sure we've got this new rising superpower. It's not playing by the rules and we're going to take that on. Whereas the Russia stuff has just become embroiled in this thing, which is also connected to the debate in the US around Donald Trump of saying, well, you know, this is a thing that liberals, you know, use to try and sort of get past the reality of what's happened to them. Which, by the way, I mean, there's a fucking, a, a pretty hefty core element of truth in that. I've heard plenty of Remainers over the years sort of try to just, well, you know, Putin did all of it. When, even if we were to find out that that was decisive, you would still need to address why so many British people were so unhappy with the status quo that they went off. It, it is a way of escaping deeper thinking about our political malaise. 
But regardless, this is just a way that they can get past it. And I don't think that, I can't see any evidence of them really getting to grips with Russian interference because I think they think it's part of the culture war. And maybe we need to have a think about how few Chinese donors there are to the Conservative Party uh, as well. <laughs> um, uh, Ian, I mean, we really need to pick a topic that you feel passionate about because uh, I'm not sure uh, that was really the one that exercised you. Um, <laughs> we can talk about the monarchy again. <laughs> but um, Helen, uh, are you expecting anything to be done after this, this you know, report's been published? It, it, what can be done to strengthen the robustness of our elections that is actually likely to happen? I think it would be, yeah, as you say, it would be good for the Conservative Party to have a conversation about where their money's coming from and whether or not they feel that they're going to be in future quite embarrassed by some of the people they've let play tennis with various people. Um, and, and as we know, that, that some of that will be in the redacted annex, um, not in the report summary that we've all been able to see. Mm. I, I, I think, I, I mean, I, 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 the triumph of the pencil, surely the triumph of the church hall and the pencil <laughs> and the huge unwieldy piece of paper. Um, and, and actually, the, the one bit that is mentioned kind of in passing, but is, uh, you know, being attacked from a couple of different sides is the, the role of social media companies. Um, and yeah. that is something, you know, Facebook's already in trouble with this advertiser by boycott already about kind of, you know, the indulgence it has for far right conspiracy theories. But, you know, we, we're probably moving towards a stage where we're having a bigger conversation about whether or not having you know, pl- pure platforms who say, you know, it's not our responsibility what goes on for us and, and which are also highly tuned for virality are things that we can allow to exist in, you know, are they compatible with a democratic society? Mm. And that's a, a question that five years ago you would have sounded like a kind of loonishly illiberal person to say that you would mm. need to regulate social networks much harder. But it feels like almost every day we're getting further evidence of the ways in which unintentionally often because of their profit-seeking motives, because of their virality-seeking motives, they have poisoned debate, discourse and democracy. Alex, uh, one uh, little interesting nugget is the microscopic reach of Russia today. Um, Apparently, it's sometimes watched by a grand total of, wait for it, 1,300 people. Uh, (laughs) Many thousands fewer than will be listening to this show. Um, Alex, why does it even bother with such small numbers? Well, according to the report, it's so that it can funnel money to uh, pundits. Um, so it, it, it exerts its influence by basically co-opting people, which which is a, a theme that runs through the report. Actually, if you look at a lot of stuff on the the laundering of money on the industry that has sprung around it of accountants and lawyers and all of that, on uh, uh, lords having interests in Russian companies, I think. That is the theme that runs through it. That there is a there is a gradual co-opting of democratic actors, so that they're no longer acting objectively or independently, or in the interests of this country. And uh, what really question for all... me about that, by the way, is I mean, back in the you know many 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 moons ago, like I don't know seven years ago, or something, I used to I'd been a pundit on Russia Today. And they paid me the princely sum of 50 quid. So what, what really concerns me is apparently it only left the zero off your invoice. Yeah, right, yeah the Russian their, state. Their assessment was that it would cost 50 quid to buy me off. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm a bit affronted by that. If, if only they knew it would just cost 20. <laughs> 
Well, uh, yeah, uh, producers of the podcast can now uh, cut Ian's rate. Uh, we now have found his market, market value. So quickly, all of you, uh, any of you, if you were suddenly kind of appointed as an electoral integrity czar, what would you implement? Alex? Oh, um, I changed the name from czar in the current circumstances, <laughs> for sure. Um, I, I think an electoral commission with a clear mandate and teeth to implement the rules would be my first and biggest step. Helen? Well, around the repeal the eighth um, abortion referendum in Ireland, there were strict curbs on foreign um, companies buying ads related to it. And I think that's one of the things that I would be really want to have a look at is mm. who is able to buy election ads, who's able to boost and what what categories are you allowed to target round, right? Sometimes those categories have been quite unsavory that you've been allowed to target ads on Facebook. And they have become slightly more transparent. There's a registry of political ads. But that's that's going to be such. I mean, that is an ongoing massive thing. So I would I would want to have a, com- a commission that would look into that well in a- advance of the election. I, I'm almost frightened to ask you, Ian. What's hmm. yours? Well, I mean, I'd take the extremely radical, you know, proposal of actually trying to find out what the fuck foreign powers are doing in our electoral process, and then coming up with a series of proposals to stop them from doing it in future. The effects of the COVID-19 crisis on industry are becoming clearer by the day, and one of the sectors that's been hit very hard is media. While Newsbrand's websites have seen strong traffic from people hungry for information, newsstand revenue has been catastrophic, and now the effects are becoming clear. Last week, The Guardian announced plans to cut 180 jobs, or 12% of its workforce, with entire sections of the weekend paper disappearing. Meanwhile, the BBC is generally agreed to have had a good crisis, uh, is still dealing with the punitive funding settlement, and will lose 520 people. The Andrew Neil show will disappear from our screens altogether. The Guardian announcement in particular was met with some pretty unseemly crowing from both the far left and far right. Jeremy Corbyn's partner, Laura Alvarez, tweeted that for our mental health and future, it's important to stop buying The Guardian. Ian, at a time when the government is giving the middle finger to any scrutiny, should the Labour left be so happy that a left paper is in trouble? <laughs> it will surprise you to learn that my answer to this is no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... You get, I tweeted this the other day. I mean, you, you really get a sense of the British media landscape. You know, when you do, so if you do like Sky Papers or something like that, you will sit there and paper after paper after paper comes in. And the only one that comes in that is, you know, left wing in terms of its DNA rather than at certain particular moments is The Guardian. Apart from that, you know, the Indies is gone. I mean, I know it exists online, but it's, it's not coming out. It's not on news agents. Um, and the eye is a sort of very different kind of beast. Um, apart from that, you know, you're left hanging with the Times and the FT, you know, which are the only ones that sort of, you know, pr- provide that kind of like that position. I mean, imagine that you sat there, you know, you said someone 20 years ago, like, oh, well, you're, you're relying on the FT for the left wing point of view. And you understand just how fucked our media landscape would be without The Guardian. It's also, you know, people are typically sort of on on the left who are uncomfortable with sort of identity politics, who I'm frankly much more sympathetic towards many of their opinions, saying the same thing, going, well, this is all happening because, you know, the Guardian has fallen to identity politics. And it's just like, what? no, actually, it, I mean, there is no basis to come up with that decision, regardless of what you think of the coverage. And you look at the sales. Sales have been declining for a long time in print. We know why that's happening. We know why people have been absolutely twatted by coronavirus in the media. It's not just happening to the Guardian. This is not... Uh, 
a demonstration of your pre-existing political prejudices. This is about an economic situation affecting the media and a technological one because of the internet. That's why it's happening. And no one with any sense on the left, I think, would welcome the Guardian folding. I can't possibly understand how anyone on the left could have ever come to that decision. And their model of you know asking for subscriptions or donations while remaining free to use it, it did seem to be working before the pandemic. I think I even read that they you know they've got backups to sort of break even. Uh, but does it make it more vulnerable to campaigns of agitation like this? You know from from you know those that think you just weren't pure enough to Jeremy. No, I, don't, I mean you'd have the same thing with a paywall. And yeah, it was working, man. They they tu- they did better than that. They they turned the profit um, in twenty 29- nineteen. 2019, yeah. I think it was, yeah, and 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 are now getting twatted for, for reasons that we've seen. I mean, no one's come up with the right system yet, right? I mean, the, the pay, you know, some people are doing better than others for various reasons. In some cases, paywalls work. There's d- different amounts of sort of porousness. Is porousness a word? I'll, I'll assume it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, you know, that the, the work differently for different outlets. It sort of depends on, on how much of a sort of bespoke offering you have, really. Um, and for others, you know, I mean, well, frankly, including for us, you know, the 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 best way is to put out your product for free and to, to offer, you know, additional sort of incentives to people who, who really are loyal to it. And also to just encourage people to say, look, if there's something out there that you like, you need to support it, which really is the case. For different organizations, different parts of that will work. But let, let's be honest that there's no one thing you can look at right now in the media landscape that's like, that's a deal breaker. That's absolutely the way to go. We haven't seen mm-hmm. it yet. And everyone's kind of hoping that, you know, one day soon we will. Helen, where does the, the sense of ownership and entitlement come from of the Guardian by the left? You know, it, it's, it, it isn't just that the your Corbyn left claim that the paper smeared him. Um, it's also people complaining that the Guardian somehow didn't investigate left anti-Semitism enough. What, what's your view on where it's all come from? I mean, I think Ian has a very good point, which is it's it's the big beast, right? It's the one that everybody feels incredibly invested in because it is the only major player that is, uh, you know, a left-wing broadsheet. The mirror is obviously on the left too, but it, it, the subjects that it covers and the approach that it has is not the kind of the same thing that agitates Twitter and gen- intelligentsia liberals. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not surprised in the same way that the, BB, the you know, why the fights over the BBC so incredibly vicious and it, because everyone thinks it's important. They think it's a victory worth mm-hmm. having. You know, why are the fights over who controls the Labour Party so vicious? Because it's the only vehicle for left wingers to get into power in Britain. Um, you know, so that, I think that's that everyone thinks, that, you know, it's the only game in town for the politics that mm-hmm. they, they want to they want to promote. Alex, do people get so angry about The Guardian because the left loves to beat itself up? <laughs> Is it the, 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 the people's popular front of Judea syndrome? Um, to an extent. I, I mean, I think I would trace it back to The Guardian coming out for the Liberal Democrats in 2010. I think um, people feel that broke uh, a, a sort of uh, un, unspoken bond that they they've never really recovered from. Uh, I, I think the phrase used was, "If the Guardian had a vote, it would cast it enthusiastically for the Liberal Democrats," <laughs> and then they ended up in coalition with the Conservatives. So I think that that was quite a deep wound, uh, and I'm not surprised it has persisted in uh, in, in uh, uh, sort of manifesting itself but you know on the on the broader subject i'm not i mean obviously it, it's terrible for the people who will lose their jobs it's terrible to have cuts 
in any employment scenario, but I would be more worried if the Guardian weren't cutting their uh, their um, pattern according to their cloth. They've suffered a financial downturn because of COVID, and I think they're doing the responsible thing as an organization, which is to limit their um, their outgoings. I I think that's a, a sign of quite a healthy, responsible organization on the whole. And what's your view on uh, you know how soon the Guardian might have to bite the bullet and, and go for the full paywall? I, I don't think they I don't think they have to because their model has largely been working. I think they just need people to be coming out of their houses and buying papers um, more. I mean, it's one of those things. Um, the, their model was sustainable before. So it will depend on the general recovery. They're in the same boat as, you know, hundreds of thousands of other businesses. If we recover quickly and to the levels of demand that we had before the coronavirus um, uh, crisis, then they will be able to return to normal service largely. If we see a very slow recovery, or if even worse, uh, economic equilibrium settles at a much lower demand level, then we're looking at a deep and long recession, and there will be many, many victims to that. Um, Ian, are you sort of rubbing your hands with glee at the prospect of Andrew Neil disappearing from the BBC? Uh, because, you know, maybe it'll leave a leave a little gap for a new generation of hardcore political interviewers. Uh, no, talking about not- Doritos lasagna. We need that kind of uh, interrogation from a grand old beast more than ever. It's like even I hadn't made the causal link between Andrew Neil and Doritos Lasagna. And I pretty much need <laughs> Doritos Lasagna wherever I fucking look. Um, no, I mean, I don't, like, I, I, I'm quite a fan of the way that Andrew Neil operates um, on TV. And I'm also quite a fan of the way that he demonstrates, if only, you know, anyone had the consistency to recognize it, um, the way that you can have quite clear opinions sort of on social media as an individual and then you know you're capable as a BBC person of being impartial when when you're actually on broadcast and I thought he, he was a really good example of that and showed that it can work um but look I mean he's going to be around right I, I think it's just the program I, I I didn't get the sense that the BBC's getting rid of him particularly I think they'll just find another slot for him somewhere um and we, we also saw that um Q Magazine has closed this week. And I remember on one of our shows uh, relatively recently, Ian, you told everyone that they really need to subscribe to some magazines to to help that industry go along. Should we all just now make sure that we, we do the right thing and go out and subscribe to a paper or two or, or make sure that we're walking once a day to go and pick up some physical copies? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the magazines I subscribed to was Q, of which I think I'm going to get two issues in total. <laughs> um, and that'll go. Um I, I do think, I mean, I would just do it as a subscription. If you can get the stuff delivered to your door, then that way, you know, if there is, God forbid, but probably will be like a second wave or whatever, then, you know, you're still you're still getting it. But I, I also, I don't think this is an act of charity, right? Like this, this is a, this is an act, this is a fundamentally a consumer act, okay? If there's stuff that you like reading, if there's stuff you enjoy listening to or watching, pay them some money, man. Like just give them some money because it, it is not being magicked out of the fucking heavens. It, it, you have to pay people to do this stuff or else they cannot afford to do the thing that you like consuming. So don't, you know, it's not like, you know, go go sign up to all these different magazines that you're never going to read. If you've got interests in music and in films and in, in politics, you know, get a subscription, help out, do, do what you can. And um, do the same with many podcasts. And I'm not talking about this. I'm, on Patreon, there's loads of places. If there's websites, if there's podcasts, if there's videocasts that you enjoy, 
they will constantly be doing that thing where they'll be saying, support us if you can. And very likely you'd have had that thing where you haven't listened. And I had that for years with most of my comic stuff. And then one day it's just like, no, actually, hang on a minute. This is part of my, you know, sort of weekly regime. This is part of the thing I do when I cook breakfast on a Sunday or when I commute and I need to contribute to it. So unless people start doing it, the shit that you like is going to go away. So today is a good time to, to, to get online and give them some support. Finally, conspiracy theories have been rife during the COVID-19 pandemic. 5G masks, weaponized bats, Chinese labs, George Soros, you name it. Bizarre theories flourish in times of paranoia, uncertainty and fear. And COVID-19 provides all three in spades. And one man has been at the center of more theories than most. Bill Gates, the world's second richest person and one of history's biggest philanthropists. How did a man who has poured billions into the global healthcare system become the bogeyman of the COVID-19 conspiracy? Alex, uh, in 2018, Bill Gates donated nearly 530 million towards eradicating polio. He's given hundreds of millions toward the treatment and prevention of HIV, and his foundation is the second biggest donor to the WHO, meaning it'll soon be the biggest, presumably, once once the US pulls out formally. Uh, why is he the target of COVID conspiracy theorists? So as far as I can see, it's because he did a TED talk in 2015, where he warned that the real danger humanity faced in terms of large numbers of people dying was not war, but it was a virus. Uh, he was talking about resistance to antibiotics and, and stuff like that. Um, and and uh, people have taken that and really run with it, uh, saying that it was a prediction, he knew it was coming. Um, The New York Times and Signal Labs did a study uh, and they found that uh, uh, theories falsely linking Bill Gates, the coronavirus, was, were mentioned 1.2 million times on television and social media between February and April. So it's rife. It is rife, but Ian, why? Like, wh- wh- why do we attack a guy who's such a, a philanthropist? Uh, YouGov and uh, Yahoo did a survey showing that more than a quarter of all Americans, uh, a very significant chunk of Republicans, believe that Gil- Bill Gates wants to use uh, a COVID nineteen vaccine to implement microchips under people's skins. Like, mm. Why do they, why do people think this? How does it begin? I don't know. Um, and it's a weird one, especially with him. I mean, I remember like sort of 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when you went to the US and said anything remotely left wing about taxes or something, you know, Bill Gates was the first name you'd get back. They'd always be like, oh, so you want, you know, guys like that to have less money to spend on charity and you want to get in the way of guys like that, you know, came from very little mm. to, to achieve. And now he's just so from being the sort of poster boy for the kind of nerd version of the American dream. He's now flipped into being like the 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 nerd demon who's come to implant his nerd microchips under your skin. Was it um, Windows 10, do you think? Did that go down? <laughs> <laughs> it, fucking, it, it was annoying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it should have happened over Vista. If people had any sense at all, it would have been Vista. Um, yeah, so um, I, I guess it's partly the, you know, the whole, there is more conspiracy theory now than there was originally. Mostly, it seems... Although they're, paradoxically, they're easier to refute now that we have an online presence than they were before. And actually, the refuting of conspiracy theories is actually quite effective. When you look at the studies, it, it does actually work better than we say it does. The trouble is that the velocity of the spread is is obviously mm. m- much more um, intense. And conspiracy theories all have that central idea of, you know, we will make 
complicated problems simple. We, you know, we will give you an enemy, a single enemy, and it will be the fault of, of them. And that will help provide you with the reassurance that there is control, that there is a sort of sense of direction to, to what is a fundamentally very chaotic world. And in that capacity, I think, you know, it, it can be anyone at any given time when there's an odd video there, you know, from a few years ago of them predicting something, when there's someone who, you know, gives a lot of money away, as, you know, he does, and also as, you know, George Soros does, you know, all these other key conspiracy figures. Um, and when there's someone that people know that they can put a name and a face to, all of that helps, and it helps to provide the kind of narrative architecture. God, that's a tangled metaphor. Uh, but <laughs> fuck it, I'll stick with it. The narrative architecture of, of, you know, how people process this kind of information. Helen, you've talked quite a bit on this show about, uh, you know, the impact of, of uh, Facebook and, and ads on social media. And of course, it, it's these mass uh, platforms where conspiracy theories, uh, you know, can, can explode and, and travel incredibly quickly around the Internet. Um, and, and, you know, we haven't even touched on deep fakes uh, as part of all of this. But, but do these new forms of media mean that we're just probably going to have to learn to live with this because it's almost going to be impossible to regulate against? Without dismantling the internet to some extent, we will do. And yeah, media literacy should be, in my opinion, probably part of the school curriculum. Um, mm. But but there are also physical things that we could do. You know, the, the YouTube algorithm is a huge radicalization engine. You know, you show people one conspiracy video and suddenly like everything that's being served to them all the time is. And, and that's something that people at Google have you know begun to take seriously and, and are thinking about what, what can be done that isn't kind of a liberal to deal with that. And, and I think that that's the, the conversation of the next decade, I hope, will be on, had on more sensible grounds that treat social media more like utility companies rather than the idea that, you know, it's freedom of, kind of freedom of speech, freedom to do everything. You know, you've just got to be allowed to do whatever you want. And actually, we'd be, we'd, we don't see regulation as, you know, we see it as protective rather than fundamentally a liberal. Exactly. There, there's no such thing as a consequence-free uh, free speech. Let's cheer ourselves up by uh, coming to the end of the show with our uh, section where we talk about our escape routes from politics. Helen, what's your diversion of choice this week? Um, I've just read The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. Um, if you enjoyed Station Eleven, which was her very prescient novel about what would happen if there was a huge pandemic that wiped lots of people out, then you'll probably enjoy this. It's It hops about in time. It's set in Vancouver Island, which is a lovely part of the world apart from other things. And is I highly recommend it. And Ian, what are you doing to take your mind off politics? Yeah, so, okay, so I had I had this idea this week of um, I was going to put together, like, a film list for my book when it comes out in, like, a couple of months' time. So, like, cool. a couple of... I'm saying all of this while the missus looks at me and points at me because actually it was her idea. But it doesn't matter because that happened privately and now I get to completely pretend it was mine. <laughs> um, and so basically that'll be like, like, I was thinking like a couple of films, like thematic, but also like that period of history for each chapter. And what that eventually led to was me spending last night watching Cartesius, which is a two and a half hour 1970s Italian made for TV film about the life of Rene Descartes. Which isn't actually a great way of escaping from. I, for, I was just about to point that out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, it was it was pretty brutal. It was really not giving any shits about your need for drama or character or really any kind of narrative structure at all. But because I'm just like a broken liberal history, <laughs> I am fucking into it, man. I enjoyed the shit out of that film. It was fucking fantastic. 
Alex, I'm guessing you may have had some time on your hands because you've been quarantining for the last fortnight. Yeah, um, but it's has over that been an today? opportunity to... It's oh, congratulations. Yay! I'm free. Um, so <laughs> I, I've, I've been measuring for and fantasizing about a new kitchen um, because I'm, re- I'm recipe <laughs> testing... I'm recipe testing for the book, and the fridge I have is nowhere near big enough. I've got one of those Diddy um, fridges, and there's basically no room in there to freeze anything or for enough ingredients. So I've been trying to rejig using uh, some software online uh, to rejig how to fit a different kind of kitchen in the teeny little space that I have. And I've also been reading my um, preview copy of uh, Nina Schick's book, uh, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, which has been uh, fantastic. Is it going to be uh, Andrew's Grand Designs or Andrew's Little Designs? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. We can have a spin-off, spin-off it, show. It's basically the show will be how to cram a large refrigerator in a space that's too small for it. I mean, that doesn't sound like the best show, if I'm completely honest. It sounds like an amazing show, you dick. <laughs> how many how many episodes of that premise do you think you're going to be able to week out? Well, we'll be dealing with a different tiny space for a refrigerator each week. <laughs> you bite me, Dunt. I bet you, I bet you Channel 5 are on the phone as we speak. <laughs> Naomi, what have you been doing? Well, like everyone, I really enjoyed I May Destroy You. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. No spoilers, no spoilers. I'm not I'm not going to spoil anything, okay. but obviously I loved it so much. I've then subsequently been hoovering up every interview, podcast and other work oh, featuring wow. mm-hmm. Michaela Cole and Michaela. If you're listening, please, please, please come on a daily uh, bunker with me because I am such a fangirl now. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to our panel. Uh, Alexandra, you thank you very much. No, thank you. Uh, <laughs> all being terribly polite um uh and thanks ian thank you and thanks to helen too we'll be back tomorrow with another bunker daily and the full length show this time next week don't forget you can back us on the crowdfunding platform patreon just see our twitter or facebook or search patreon bunker podcast to find out more if you back us you'll get a shout out on the show and here are some of those now Hello and many thanks for me to Julian Beach, Michael Simmons, Gary Field, Niall Joyce and Dan Alexander. Hello and thanks from me to Andrew Tanner, Mike McReady, Hannah Luff, Richard and Teresa. Thanks and best wishes from me to Eliza Wheaton, John Stark, Janet Bunker, okay if you say so, Ben Plumley and Derek Smith. And it's hello from me to Emma Geyer. Meet, that's M-E-E-T, not M-E-A-T, Chris Spencer, James and Richard Arnold. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Naomi Smith with Alexandreou, Ian Dunt and Helen Lewis. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. And the assistant producer is Jacob Archibald. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Oh,